Welcome to Can, Can We, we talk, talk About this? this? I'm your host, Amberly from The Power of Birth. And I'm your producer, Rajelle from Be Designs. And together we created this podcast to talk about women's health and the things that really matter. We have a real passion and focus on women's health and wellness and overall emphasize the importance of talking about maternal health. We chat to experts and continue sharing your stories. We're here to start the conversation, raise awareness, spread the word, call out gaps in the system and implicit biases. And we hope you learn something or even if you're just screaming yes the entire podcast. This is not a place for small talk. We're about real talk. And when we know better, we do better. And we challenge you to start this conversation elsewhere. Did you know you can find further resources on thepowerofbirth.net via the printable resources tab that includes things like a hospital bag checklist, postpartum toolbox, pelvic health information, and so much more. Don't forget while you're there to subscribe to thepowerofbirth.net for your free printable motherhood affirmations. I hope you love them as much as I do. Today's episode, I chat to Rebecca McMartin from Perinatal Stories Australia, who I would describe as a survivor. Rebecca openly shares her heart-aching experiences struggling with acute anxiety, tocophobia, obsessive-compulsive disorder, and post-traumatic stress disorder as a new mother in pregnancy, birth, and postpartum. She's been able to transform her experiences into something pretty damn powerful, breaking the silence around perinatal mental health struggles and creating a platform for these really important conversations and experiences in motherhood. I'm so grateful to her for being able to be bold enough to say the hard things out loud. And aside from mothering, Rebecca is a linguist and so storytelling is a real passion of hers. And so today she's here to share hers. So Rebecca, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm actually really excited to talk to you because I've been following you for a long time. I have heard your story before and I love what you've kind of done with it, if I can say that. You've really created a safe space and amazing platform online um, to reach far and wide for mothers who are struggling with some um, mental health struggles but also just modern motherhood in general and what that can look yeah. like um, so I appreciate you coming on today for those who may not know you can you just briefly introduce yourself um, I'll say hi first. Hi, Amber. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate that. And yeah, I always appreciate the support that you provide my my little corner of the internet, I guess. So thank you for that. Um, my name's Rebecca. I am the founder and host of Perinatal Stories Australia, which is my own podcast, um, but also my social media community. And yeah, I'm a mum to a little boy who we affectionately named Pudge or Pudgy whichever <laughs> unfortunately for him the nickname stuck so um and he just turned two so I'm kind of in this weird space of wow it's been two years but also what are two years that has been <laughs> so thanks for letting me talk about that yeah and I feel like it's still it's still quite early on mm. right like as he kind of grows and you grow with him like there will be those waves and Mm-hmm. those surges of <laughs> struggle Although, and yeah and also I think it's the anniversary stuff as mm. well which not that I didn't expect it like I do um right now two years ago I was still in the MBU so the mother and baby psychiatric hospital and so looking at you know your google photo memories and things it's like wow you know and it, it, it hits it hits when you don't expect it and 
So yeah, I've been sitting with that the last couple of days. So mm. It's a lot yeah. to take on. Well, I appreciate you coming on in the midst of, of all of that to talk to me what about it. <laughs> you get the raw version. So Yeah, love it. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious to know when this all sort of began, when did you kind of start recognizing that something wasn't right? Oh, are we talking like in general or specifically? Yeah, gen- in, in general. Sure. So I was... Um, I was always anxious. Mm. Uh, I was that child. Um, there were moments, I guess, in childhood where it wasn't just mild anymore. It became quite moderate or severe. And when it took over my life, um, became very apparent, I think, you know, your preteen, early teen years. Um, and I guess in hindsight, there were a lot of symptoms or behaviours that were evident not just anxiety but the obsessive and compulsive um thoughts and behaviors that were always there Mm. um which again that's the luxury of hindsight um they spiked quite highly throughout my teen years but I didn't know that at the time I thought I was just I'm an overanalyzer I'm an anxious person I worry a lot so you know you kept I kept a lot of that to myself, you know, I I was more than comfortable telling people I had anxiety, um, which I did, (laughs) Um, and I was diagnosed as such with general anxiety disorder, panic disorder, social anxiety, all of that stuff, Um, but I did know that I had, let's say, compulsions, Um, although I didn't label them as such, I didn't want to acknowledge that they were there, I was quite ashamed of those I think Mm. um you know the repetitive ticks and you're hoping people don't notice them or those obsessive thoughts or intrusive thoughts I should say which are they're quite confronting um something like OCD again hindsight you learn that they're ego dystonic so they go against your values and who you are as a person so you know as a teen you're having these thoughts that can be really distressing you know those are your formative years you're thinking is this who I am I'm having these thoughts what does this mean about me so I think subconsciously I knew (laughs) not that I had OCD but I knew that I had potentially those tendencies and I just kind of kept those to myself but I was always very open about the anxiety and because that was you know what was the most debilitating that's what um I guess overwhelmed my (laughs) my life and my functioning whereas the OCD it was there it was just in a mild form I guess throughout most of my life coinciding with the anxiety and you know it had its peaks I guess but again I kind of brushed it aside as it's part of my anxiety Mm. so yeah I guess since I was a kid um (laughs) and then yeah that carried on through pregnancy and motherhood so yeah that sounds so difficult as a child to navigate and an adolescent. Mm. Did your family have any kind of mental health literacy? Um, not as such, no. Um, and that's not to blame no. my family at all. But, you know, we did come from that background where you don't talk about that stuff. Mm. Um, or it's, oh, okay, but, you know, just think you know be happy just just be happy like it would be reinforced that we don't acknowledge that we don't talk about that um so the literacy itself wasn't there um 
I was lucky in the sense that one day I kind of confided in a teacher and she took me to the school counsellor and, um, you know, through talking with the school counsellor and then eventually referring me on to a um, child psychologist, that's when all that kind of stuff, not the OCD stuff, but the anxiety stuff really, it was labelled, it was diagnosed. Um, But yeah, it was... As a kid, you know, you're having panic attacks and you don't know what they are. You don't know what they mean and they're scary. And, you know, I think panic disorder as well is something, I think, don't quote me on this, but clinically it gets diagnosed if you have at least two panic attacks a month. And I, at that stage in my life, my early teens, I was having them twice a day. Wow. And, you know, that's in the middle of class, in the middle of school. So you're constantly leaving the room. You're the kid that's getting looks because I'm shaking, I'm looking terrified or I'm, you know, that nervous ball of energy and I'm just constantly wanting to leave the room. And then when you can't leave and you're, you know, that fight or flight, you're the kid that's, I don't know, maybe a bit more irritable because you're trying to hide the panic attack but you can't and then you're embarrassed and it's just all these things and you don't understand it. You don't know why it's happening. It's just happening. Mm. And it's scary. So, yeah, I, you know, I think I give myself a little bit more grace now as an adult. Um, But at the time, yeah, it sucked. (laughs) Let's put it that way. That's the nice way to put it. So how do you feel reflecting back on those times? Um, Now I have more compassion. Mm. Um, But, yeah, I mean, sometimes I do really get into that let's say that pit where I think I've always been broke. You know, it's Mm. that kind of self-talk where, yes, I did have a perinatal mental ill health episode um, quite severely, but, you know, there's that part of me that thinks, well, maybe I'm just broken because I've had this all the time. So, you know, that language and that talk definitely spikes. I can't pretend I'm I'm cured of that. Mm. I... I do look back and I think, you know, what was wrong with me or so, you know, that, that is still there at times. Mm. Um, most of the time though, I think I'm I'm getting better. I should say at navigating, not blaming myself as a kid. Like, what did I know? What more could I have done? I was that kid that was proactive. I was reading books about anxiety. I was asking questions. I loved going to see my psychologist. <laughs> as weird as that sounds, I still love seeing my psychologist. Mm. But, you know, I always was proactive. You know, I never once, I don't know, I, yeah, and I even made myself a promise when I was a kid that I wasn't going to do anything in my life to make my anxiety worse. You know, and like having to have those conversations with yourself as a kid and even, and this is probably deep and dark and you're more than welcome to cut this out, but again, in hindsight, reflecting on the OCD, there was a point where I must have heard a story of someone who'd hurt themselves and I really latched onto that and I didn't want to do that. But in the, I guess, a pit of depression, I just kept thinking, what if I'm capable of that? And I remember making myself a promise and I said, I don't care what's going to happen or I don't know what's going to happen, but whatever it is, I'm promising myself now that I will not hurt myself. And so, you know, you're having those conversations (laughs) as a kid, but I I kept that promise. That was, 
And that's why, as a person, I was very proactive. I always went to therapy when things were starting to get hard or was constantly asking for help because I thought, I don't, you know, my mind would go to that worst-case scenario and I was like, I don't want to get to that point, so let me ask for help before I get to that point. Mm. And, yeah, I think that's where maybe, maybe this is a good segue into pregnancy is that I had gone into pregnancy and motherhood thinking that I was mentally well (laughs) I was in a good place and because I'd done all this therapy and I didn't want anxiety to get in the way of my parenthood I didn't want it to you know be a burden on my kids like I never wanted that to happen so I was very conscious of you know waiting to fall pregnant until I felt in a place where my anxiety wasn't controlling my life so then you get pregnant and life happens um But I think that's where a lot of the blame comes because anxiety did happen and it did get in the way and it took me to some really, really, really dark places. Not just the anxiety, but the other stuff that happened, which we can talk about. Um, And so, yeah, that blame is still sometimes there, sometimes under the surface. I'm getting better at drowning it out, but still that feeling that I didn't do everything that I could have. Mm. You know, maybe I could have done more and... You know, I promised that I didn't want anxiety to get in the way of my life, my parenting, my mothering, my birth, my pregnancy, all of that. And it did. So. Yeah. Well, can you tell me then how how was your pregnancy? Yeah, I mean, pregnancy itself was good. Um, I actually really enjoyed being pregnant. Um, I probably, not many people say that, but I had really, how do I put this? It was very conflicting and... I had, I was the most anxious that I'd ever been in my life, Mm. but I was also the most happiest. So Mm. it's hard to put into words that, yes, I was so, so anxious, but there were those really good, peaceful moments where I felt connected to my baby, connected to my body, and it felt, it felt right, if that makes sense. Like, I loved being pregnant. I love, you know, that was a dream come true. So yeah I I really struggle to put that into words because I there were some really 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 good moments that I really clung on to to convince me things were okay because I had those good moments um but the reality was I I was so anxious and I I guess I wasn't in an anxious I wasn't at the severe levels that I used to have in terms of anxiety when I first got pregnant so I convinced myself that things were things were fine because I wasn't having panic attacks because I wasn't retreating socially. I wasn't scared to leave the house, you know, in terms of that threshold of how I measure anxiety, I was like, well, I'm not doing that. So I'm fine. I was still really anxious. And I guess I just hadn't quite sat down with myself and acknowledged that. So, you know, when I got pregnant, the anxiety was there straight away as both, I guess, a continuation and an escalation (laughs) of what was already there. It started with me being anxious about my symptoms, you know, the usual pregnancy aches and pains. I would obsess about what they meant. Um, I was obsessing about what ifs. And not, at first it was, I don't want to get attached to the baby just in case. I want to protect myself. Mm. And then it turned into this this absolute want for control. So lots and lots of researching, lots of tears, lots of decision paralysis, because I was convinced that any like I was so scared of making the wrong choice, you know, that if I make one choice, it's going to be catastrophic. If it's the wrong choice, it's going to, 
even something like nappy rash cream felt like life or death. I remember researching, reading reviews on every brand, every variety for a week, and I was a sobbing mess because I could not decide what nappy rash cream I could buy. And there was no logical reasoning that I could say to myself, well, if this isn't the right one, then we can go try another one. It was, I have to make the right decision now so that I don't have to worry about it later so that there's no consequences and that, you know, whatever that may be. So it it was that very life or death, catastrophic, black and white thinking. Mm. There was no no logic there. Um, And then finally... I mean, in addition to insomnia and panic attacks started creeping back in, but slowly. So I thought, oh, it's fine. It's not two a day. It's, you know, maybe two a week. So that's fine. You know, (laughs) Um, it then turned into this fear of birth and postpartum, which kind of came out of nowhere. I was originally, I would imagine my birth and, you know, the whole reaching down and lifting your baby onto your chest. Like I would imagine that every day and I felt so good and happy and looking forward to that. I mean, I wasn't looking forward to birth, but I was looking forward to that moment that I could have. And it, you know, in your head, it's all transformative and beautiful and empowering. And all of a sudden out of nowhere, I just had this absolute all consuming fear of birth. Um, and that's, I guess, which we can probably talk about in a little bit, but Clinically, it's tocophobia, so the clinical fear of birth. Um, that I, I say it came out of nowhere. I'm sure it was, you know, building up in the background, but it was just this fear that, yeah, um, postpartum depression or anxiety could hit me, and it could be severe. And I think because I'd heard a story about a mum hurting herself, mm. that's what my mind latched onto, and. You know, that took me back to being the kid and making that promise to myself. And so in my head, it was in order to keep that promise to myself, in order to not hurt myself so that I don't become a statistic like this mum, I need to control my postpartum. So, you know, in my third trimester of pregnancy, I'm, you know, writing lists and trying to organize things and research and anything that I could do to feel some sense of control that I could somehow avoid postpartum depression or anxiety. That in itself was the symptom of anxiety. And I always want to talk about that is that we are so focused on postpartum a lot of the time that we're quite oblivious to mental health in pregnancy. But I will, we can talk about that later. But I guess, yeah, me wanting to control that postpartum then led me to wanting to control birth because I thought if my birth is even in the slightest way, the teeniest, tiniest bit traumatic, that's going to cause me to have postpartum depression, anxiety, insomnia, psychosis, you know, my mind was catastrophizing. And so then, you know, me wanting to control birth, birth's not something you can control. So it then became something to be scared Mm. of. So every day leading up to birth in my third trimester. And I say this a lot, um, so sorry if you're listening if you've heard me say this, but it felt like I was walking one step closer to death. Like that timeline, that end date was there. And so every day that just kept getting closer and closer to birth, like I didn't want, I couldn't talk about birth without combusting into tears. I mean, yeah, and I guess this, if we want to, Maybe if I can elaborate on the topic. Yeah, go for it. Um, it's, it's that all-consuming and debilitating. Couldn't think about birth, couldn't talk about birth, couldn't hear about it, couldn't read about it without crumbling into some pit of despair and terror. I was absolutely terrified. Um, 
I'd be on the shower floor for an hour crying and I'd make my husband sit on the other side of the shower screen just so that I wasn't alone but because I also I was scared to get up off the shower floor because getting up meant okay I have to get up and accept the fact that birth is closer so if I just sit on the floor it's like time isn't happening you know it's I don't know it was just easier to sit still and sob on the shower tiles or on the floor of the spare room and just try to be numb and not move so that I could pretend time didn't exist so I could pretend birth wasn't coming and that's the best way I can describe it it so how far along were you when this started 28 weeks I think so right on that third trimester cusp um Mm -hmm. and you know it was it was paralyzing (laughs) and I was doing anything and everything to avoid reminders of that I guess end date the birth that was coming there was a part of me that didn't want to even risk getting to that day as illogical as that sounds Mm. like I said I loved being pregnant and I wanted to be a mum but I wanted to cut that middle bit out you know I didn't want to have to go through birth I think this is a good point though to point out so when we're talking about something like tocophobia like and we can talk about fear of birth and all that sort of thing and it's a very common very conversation isn't it yeah. yeah and it's very normal and natural to fear something that you've maybe never done Absolutely. before people talk about pain and you fear pain yeah. and all those things those things are quite normal but with tocophobia this is genuinely this next is level fear. fear yeah I, yeah. I just think it's important to distinguish no, the and two. I, absolutely. And I mean, that fear of birth, I did have originally, yeah. you know, and I think that that's, that was quote unquote normal. I think that's common. Mm-hmm. And like I said, I had that fear, but I still felt okay about it in the sense that I can get through that's it. That's right. It's not interrupting well, your life. No. Yeah. No. Whereas this was absolute panic. I Like, I don't know if I'll ever be able to put into words that, panic or that terror about what was to come Mm -hmm. and so then I was in that position of do I birth vaginally or do I get a c-section and then that decision paralysis as well I already was struggling to make a decision about a nappy rash cream so both of those options to me meant a wrong decision so you know on the one hand I had my beautiful obstetrician who was telling me Beck I think you're going to have a textbook birth you know I I will support you that you know vaginal birth but just fyi my anxious patients tend to offer the c-section just so that you know the controls out of their hand that uncertainty is out of their hand the controls in my hand Mm -hmm. and so obviously i like the sound of that but i was also terrified about a c-section i didn't yeah look i was more comfortable with a planned c-section than i was an emergency c-section but that didn't stop the fact that I was still scared of surgery because that was still birth. <laughs> that was surgery. I've never been in hospital. I've never had to confront that health anxiety that I have. So yeah, that absolutely terrified me. And I kept thinking, what are the ramifications of that? You know, you hear people say, oh, it's, you know, you're more likely your kids aren't going to have the right, um, you know, the micro mm-hmm. <laughs> bio, you know, the, the gut health that they need or the immunity that they need, or they're going to have respiratory problems or it might impact your periods or what. And you know, all that catastrophizing is not helping me make a decision. Um, But I just kept thinking if I go into a vaginal birth, I'm not all of a sudden going to be able to flick a switch and turn off this anxiety. There is, it's too pervasive at this point, you know, maybe if I was in a lesser (laughs) of a distressed state, maybe, 
I could have, but at the state that I was in, where I was anxious just even sitting on the couch, not wanting to leave the house, there was no way in an uncertain situation that I could have gone in and all of a sudden switched my anxiety off, got my head in the game and just gone with the waves and the flow. Um, And yeah, like I said, I was so worried about all those what ifs, you know, hemorrhaging, postpartum eclampsia, you know, all of these things that I just thought I would rather put the control back in my OB's hands mm-hmm. so that I'm not the one having to, yeah, try to find <laughs> moments of control over both what what's happening with my body and my anxiety at the same time. Yeah. So body and mind, I was, there was no way I could control them. Yeah. That so actually makes a made... lot of sense. Yeah. To make the decision to do something like that. And it's great that you had an obstetrician who recognized that and could offer that to you. Look, i I'm still not at peace with that decision. Right. I know it's the it was absolutely the right decision. I know in my heart of hearts there was no way I could have gotten my head in the game for birth. Um, I still grieve that decision. Of though. course. And that's okay. Like, it's complex. And, yes, I made the decision to have a C-section. I can still grieve that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I guess the problem was... <laughs> I hadn't committed to that decision because I was still umming and ahhing. So I signed the paperwork so that there was a date set so that, you know, if it, if I change my mind and whatever, then at least the date is set and I can, you know, go get my C-section or, you know, go through a vaginal birth if I felt like. Like I just, I hadn't committed to the decision and I think that that was a big part of the problem because... Well, it's you're not fully committed, so it still feels like something's happening to you, and you're not you're passive. You haven't actively chosen to go through it. Yeah, totally. So. Well, that makes sense to me when you say things like "I still, I still grieve that," or "There's still something there about that," because it's like tocophobia and anxiety actually took your decision making away, and you were Absolutely. basing those decisions on those conditions. So yeah. that makes a lot of sense to me, and yeah, yeah. totally valid. And so yeah. you did opt for the cesarean? Yeah. And even the morning of, I was literally sitting on the on the bathroom floor thinking, I wonder if I if my, my waters break before I go into surgery. Will I give it a go? Like, like I said, I had not committed to either decision. Yeah. I was constantly back and forth, back and forth. But both felt scary. Yeah. And I walked into that C-section. You know, it was COVID time, so I was wearing my mask and... I was sobbing. So that mask was drenched. It was absolutely drenched. And as I said before, like literally walking through the hallways to theatre was that one step closer to death, one step closer to this worst case scenario in my mind that I had built up. Um, Wow. So, yeah, I, uh, yeah, that's my birth story, I guess, or my pregnancy and birth was textbook nothing went wrong I lost minimal blood the everyone in that room was so so considerate and so kind and so nurturing because they could see the state that I was Mm -hmm. in um but I guess that didn't quite it I don't know if anything could have prevented what was to happen I think the tocophobia itself um Which, again, was only diagnosed in hindsight. At Ah. the time, it was, this is just anxiety, you know? This is just anxiety. And that's probably my fault as well because I was, again, 
I'm not having a panic attack twice a day, so I'm fine. Mm -hmm. This is just anxiety. This is just hormones. Once birth's over, it will be fine. And I really held on to that. I'm going to say belief is delusion. (laughs) I was really holding on to that. And, you know, hindsight's a wonderful thing. Um, But, yeah, obviously in hindsight with my psychologist is when she said, Rebecca, you've met every clinical criteria (laughs) for tocophobia and no one picked up on it. I said, well, no, not really. I, I think because I wasn't being honest with myself mm-hmm. and then I wasn't then honest with my care team. I was saying, like, I'm so anxious, I'm so worried about birth. Like, I, they could see how scared I was, but I guess the full extent of what was happening at home behind the scenes where I was, you know, in a pit on the floor crying, not wanting to think about birth, no one was seeing that except for my husband, so... And again, it was just, oh, this is anxiety. Once the birth's done, it'll be fine. Mm. So. And I think tocophobia, it's not its not very well known either. Like, no. you know, anxiety and tocophobia, like we all yeah, talk about and, anxiety. <laughs> and we all also talk about fear of birth. Yes. So it was, oh, I'm just scared of birth. Mm-hmm. So, And that's a normal thing. So, you know, I didn't. And I, I mean, there was that blame where, okay, I'm extra scared of birth. And why are other people... You know, other people are scared of birth, but they're not this scared of yeah. birth. So it's something wrong with me. It's my anxiety. And, you know, again, that blame yeah. <laughs> comes through. And so, yeah, hindsight is a beautiful thing. And my psychologist had said to me, which I took as comforting um, because it, it took the blame away from me, I guess. She goes, Rebecca, you had no chance in terms of what was to come. And, like, that's hard to sit with, but it's also... There I was beating myself up and still do sometimes of what more could I have done? Maybe if I had read more about this or maybe if I didn't listen to that or whatever it is, you know, maybe everything that happened afterwards wouldn't have happened. And she says, Rebecca, that's tocophobia. You didn't, you can't control that, can't control that anxiety. There was nothing you could have done more. Mm. So... I took comfort from that, but again, that's that's hindsight. Yeah. At the time, and yeah, it was this. I've done this to myself, so. Yeah, yeah. that seems to be a theme a throughout theme, your yes. life. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I wanted to ask. So you said that you had sort of this textbook cesarean birth. Mm-hmm. You were quite distressed throughout the procedure. Very. Yeah. yeah. So I was having panic attack after panic attack on the table. Wow. So obviously when you're in the middle of a C-section, <laughs> jolting your body is not yeah. not ideal. Um, I mean, for the most part, the spinal, you know, goes numb top down. Um, but I guess I could still feel the panic in my body. And there's that fight or flight. My thing is to flight. Like, I want to leave. Yeah. But I knew I couldn't leave. So I just had – and honestly, I thought – if I just close my eyes, if I just grip my teeth, if I just get through the panic, once it's over, things will be fine. So did um, they put baby on your chest after the birth? Like what did that sort offered. of look like? Okay, yeah. Look, they offered and I said no yep. because I was so anxious. I didn't want to I didn't want to look at him. Mm-hmm. Um I didn't want to think about it. I just asked my OB how much longer is this going to take? So that you know, once I finished gritting my teeth and whatever, then I could think about my son. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and then they offered him to my husband, you know, do you want to hold him? You'd be the first to hold him. My husband said no, because he saw how distressed I was. He was holding my hand. He says, I am not leaving my wife. So again, this is where blame comes in mm. because my son was held by a stranger for maybe 10 minutes. So there I was throughout my whole life and my mission during pregnancy to not let anxiety get in the way of my life, my decisions, my parenting, my pregnancy, my birth, all of this. And I couldn't even hold my son because anxiety came first. Mm. So that's something that even now I still sit with. And that is not a nice feeling at all to feel like, you know, anxiety was more important than your kid. But at the time I was so scared. Well, you keep saying and... anxiety, but I'm like, that was tocophobia. Yeah, I mean both. I think they, you know, phobia is an anxiety disorder, so I guess I look at them. (laughs) But yeah, it was, that got in the way. Mm -hmm. And so I got in the way of my parenting, you know, because there's still that, I think even in society, there's this fundamental belief that we are in control of our mental health, you know, that we can somehow, you know, and so that blame of, okay, well, because I wasn't in control of my anxiety, therefore I got in the way of my own parenting kind of thing. Yeah. So yeah, that was, that was our, our story. And so when you think about that now, I can see mm. that's kind of a wound that you have mm. about that yeah. because that's something that you wanted, but couldn't do in those moments. Yeah. Yeah. And so can you tell me then what was going on for you after that procedure and in postpartum? Mm, so for the first two days were surprisingly okay. Wow. You know, once I got out of birth, stopped having the panic attacks, C-section was over, it was like, okay, <laughs> you know, that's over. Well, when did the tocophobia kind of alleviate? I guess once birth was really? over. Really? Wow. Like, but then the anxiety kicked back yeah. in. Because, you know, yes, it was the tocophobia of that fear of birth. And my mind was telling me once that's over, it will be okay. But then all the other things kicked in. And so, yeah, first two days were, and this is where it's weird. I say I thought it was okay because I was back to my normal quote unquote anxiety. And I was, but my normal of anxiety is not normal yeah well Um, I like to say no amount of anxiety is probably normal but but I think my threshold I would say yeah my threshold is ridiculously high so I guess here I was asking every single nurse to check my obs check my temperature check my blood pressure because I was just convinced I'm I'm vulnerable Mm-hmm. So I'm going to get, what if I get a postpartum hemorrhage? Oh, is my wound oozing? Can you just check it? Am I going to get preeclampsia? What if I get sepsis? Can you just check that the IV, you know, the catheter's in or the cannula's in properly? All of this. I was constantly asking them to check and constantly asking for reassurance. But again, in my head, I thought, okay, this is my normal level of anxiety. It's not the phobia um, at this point in time. Yeah. I'm not scared of the birth anymore. I'm back to my normal level of anxiety. Things are going to be okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I bonded with my son. I breastfed him easily. Like those first two days were pretty good. I had my appetite back. My wound was healing nicely. I was able to get up and go have a shower. Like, you know, those things that they want you to be able to do. I was ticking all of those boxes. Um, but yeah, that, that health anxiety really crept back in straight away. Mm. And 
yeah, um, then the PTSD symptoms started and that's when I think I realised things were not okay. Again, hindsight, I didn't know that's what was happening at the time, I just thought I'm going crazy. <laughs> um, that's kind of when the birth, I'm going to say birth trauma, the tocophobia kind of switched from the phobia to the trauma mm -hmm. because it was after the fact now. It wasn't the lead up to it, it was after yep. the fact. So... so when you say so you recognize obviously now not mm. at the time that there was some post-traumatic stress symptoms in within the first yep. week after birth day three yeah wow by day three my first symptom was hypervigilance okay um so i always talk about this moment it was like 2 a.m in the morning i just breastfed my son and he was in the little um bassinet and I was just looking at him and I was staring at him because I just thought he was the most beautiful thing in the world. And I had that that rush of oxytocin, you know, that, that maternal bliss kind of glow. And I just felt so happy because I thought, everything's going to be okay. How, how can it not be okay? I'm this, you know, here I was worried. I'm not going to, you know, the anxiety of I'm not going to love my son or whatever. And there I was loving him. So things things had to be okay regardless of the anxiety and I sat with that for maybe 15 minutes and then all of a sudden that that glow it felt like my body was on fire like everything suddenly felt threatening and I was just pumping with adrenaline because you know I was looking at everything as a threat and all of a sudden I had to think through every possible worst case scenario so that I could mentally prepare for it mm -hmm. and either prevent it or you know make sure that I'm not surprised by that scenario so that I'm prepared in case it ever happens so I was there day three postpartum worrying about what happens when I you know if my if I need to wean my son or how do I introduce foods without him choking or you know when he's learning to walk what if I drop his hand in the middle of a car park and he runs and it just it started with those little things and then it got it got so much bigger and my mind was constantly problem solving it was in that state that I had to problem solve everything because everything could be a threat everything was a danger everything could hurt me or my son potentially and so it's going back I think to some of that stuff in pregnancy where I couldn't make a decision because everything felt like life or death and I originally blamed anxiety or maybe it's leftover morphine in my system from the surgery or, you know, I was trying to find excuses and then it turned into nightmares. So that day three, a couple hours after that, you know, the rush of oxytocin moment, I tried to go to sleep and anytime I closed my eyes, I would have these like bursts of nightmares flash before my eyes and I'd jolt in a panic. And that was happening every single time I closed my eyes for hours and hours, for days and days. So I didn't sleep. Um, and I didn't know why this was happening. Again, this was me thinking I'm either crazy, there's either morphine in my system. Like, you know, I'm trying to find reasons, I'm trying to find excuses and not, not excuses. I'm trying to explain it. I'm trying to understand it. And yeah, anytime I close my eyes, and I wasn't sleeping, but it felt like I was being woken up by this jolt of panic. And that was every second. So I'd close my eyes, have this nightmare, jolt myself, and then on repeat. So 
that fight or flight was just constant. Mm. So yeah, the the insomnia obviously had hit at that point and then I became very anxious about not being able to sleep because in my head, if I wasn't sleeping, then I'm going to get postpartum psychosis, I'm going to get the depression, anxiety, it's all going to happen. And that worst case scenario that I was so worried about, hearing that story of that mum, that's now clearly going to happen to me Mm. is how I felt. Um, And then, you know, in addition, you get the flashbacks and then there's the avoidance. So... I wasn't, how do I put this, because I guess I was so scared about birth and the C-section, after birth I didn't want to, I guess, acknowledge what had happened in terms of my body. Mm. So in my head it was like my body was split in half. I wanted to pretend that the bottom half of my body, where the scar was, where the wound was, didn't exist because I didn't want to, I didn't want to look at it because I didn't want to think about mm. it. Um so it's like that little black hole of like, let's just pretend it doesn't exist because then if I can pretend it doesn't exist, then I don't have to, those feelings I don't have to confront. And rapid onset of OCD then came very quickly. So, so there were a lot of things happening. Here. Yeah. So before we go into the OCD, because I'm particularly interested to hear about mm. this. So I think a lot of the a lot of people, um, when they think about post-traumatic stress disorder, they think a deemed traumatic event has to occur in Mm. order for you to have these symptoms and Mm. when we look at a story like yours things were cool calm collected and controlled in that environment in theory it was textbook c-section nothing on paper would suggest that i should experience any symptoms of trauma but for you and this is for me this is what i'm saying right so it's it comes Mm. down to that psychological safety and yeah. you were in distress in those moments. You did not feel safe in those moments. No. And so no. then this comes on to become post-traumatic stress disorder. I just feel like this is like mm. a really big thing to talk about because, yeah, we talk about po- like these traumatic Birth events trauma and, yeah. that, you know, there's physical, there's, you know, all of those things. But it's like there is an, a component of this that is psychological and it has Completely. to be about your psychological safety. So mm. just because things went according to plan, yeah. you were not psychologically safe. No. And I think that um, one of your questions was about, was there some ambivalence with some of the labels or mm. diagnoses given to you? And this was it. Right. For me, I know logically I experienced birth trauma, PTSD, But I struggled to sit with that for a long time. And I still do at times because, like we said, nothing went wrong. You know, nothing went wrong in my pregnancy or birth. I didn't have any complications. I didn't experience obstetric violence. There was no near-death experience. There was no placental abruption Mm -hmm. or preeclampsia or hemorrhaging or an ICU state. There was nothing on paper. So, again, this is where that experience comes with a lot of self-blame because... All I can think in my head is I had a healthy pregnancy. I had a textbook birth. What is wrong with me that I have come out of those experiences with not just psychological trauma, but I think it started as acute stress disorder and then morphed into the PTSD, whatever it's called. Mm -hmm. It's that PTSD. How did I do that? And all my brain and my heart could tell me was there was no good reason for it other than I'm broken, that there is something fundamentally wrong with me that I can go through a birth that 
most people would dream of. Most people would dream to have that C-section. If, you were, if you'd had an emergency C-section, the, the C-section that I had would have been, you know, rainbows to anyone. And how is it that I can go through something like that and end up the way that I did? It has to be me. It has to be that there is something wrong with me. And yeah, that comes with a lot of pain. And as you said, I think on social media, especially there is this black and white content or concept about what birth trauma is and what it isn't. And you have to go through X, Y, Z for it to be a traumatic birth. And so when my version of birth trauma and PTSD doesn't equal that, you feel so much more alien, broken, unfixable compared to what is a valid reason for trauma. Mm. I, in my head, clearly this isn't a valid reason. And it took a long time for me to acknowledge that it was actually birth trauma. It was PTSD. Mm-hmm. And I knew it. I knew the symptoms. And yeah, it took a long time to actually yeah, sit with that yeah. because again, I had no reason. Yeah. Or I had no valid reason according to society, social media, whatever it is, you know, you're taught or you're told a traumatic experience, you know, like a mm. plane crash or obstetric violence or whatever it is equals traumatic birth. But it's so grey and there are so much psychological trauma especially. Yes. There is no recipe. Yes. There is no recipe. If you don't feel safe, even if it's a safe environment, yep. on by all accounts, yep. you know, again, I had no mistreatment, no abuse, no malpractice. There was nothing. No one was mean to me. No one invalidated me. No one was rude or anything. There was no reason even, like, yeah. So that's where I was left. Yeah. And, again, I cannot blame anyone. I can't blame anyone. There was no one at fault there. Yeah. And it wasn't like I went through a complication or anything either. There was me in a room that was, in theory, very safe. Um, but my mind, because of the tocophobia, mm. had told me it wasn't safe. Yeah. And it was dangerous and it was threatening. And, yeah. So that's where the trauma, the PTSD then comes, mm-hmm. which I'm more than happy to go into a bit more. But... Yeah, I... So, how do you feel about birth now? I... It's a hard one. Yeah. It's a really hard one, and it's something I still work on with my psychologist, Mm. um, that birth trauma in particular, um, because, again, there is... And it's not as loud as it used to be, But I can't pretend that there's still not that little voice that's telling me I could have done something to prevent that or I could have just changed my attitude or thought more positively or done a few more affirmations and then somehow I could have gotten through that experience Mm. and then everything that happened later would not have happened. Yeah. So, Which is the worst thing we do to ourselves. (laughs) It just adds to that suffering. It does. It does. But fundamentally, that's how it felt. And I think the scariest part about, you know, the nightmares and the PTSD, I don't even know if I can really call them nightmares. That would imply I was asleep. I wasn't. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, that just happening over and over again for hours and hours a day. Can I ask what they were? Oh, sorry. 
they could be anything. And I think that's also why it took a long time to actually connect it to the birth. It wasn't just nightmares about the birth. It was, it could be a plane crash or it could be a bomb falling from the sky. It could be, what if I'm diagnosed with cancer? And some of them weren't even quote unquote threatening. Some of them were sending a text message, but then I jolt in a panic because anything that I was seeing in my mind was telling me it's scary, it's dangerous. So again, this is why I think it took a while to connect the dots between the tocophobia and what I was going through Mm -hmm. because it wasn't explicitly, it wasn't like the nightmares were about the birth. The flashbacks were, the avoidance was, the, you know, getting a panic attack just thinking about my C-section scar. I kept that bandage on for six weeks because I just could not look at it could not look at it I would look in the corner of the shower so I didn't have to acknowledge that that was there mm-hmm. like that bottom half of my body did not exist in my mind so what it could what would happen when you would be confronted with the fact that it is there so pain pure or panic attack yeah, okay pure panic attack I even remember being in the MBU which we can talk about a bit later um but just that I had a little bit of pain because I think I picked up pudgy out of the bassinet at a wrong angle or something Mm. and it was a tiny ache right like you you would consider it to be probably period pain like as an equivalent but in my mind it was I've opened up my wound I've you know maybe this is period pain now and it's this is sorry it was more than period pain I should say that it was like a muscle ache Mm -hmm. but I just thought oh my god this is what my periods are going to be like from now on I've done this to myself what if it screws up my periods what if I can't have kids again what if you know what are all these complications that are going to happen am I oozing like absolute spiral absolute spiral and I even remember crying with the girls in the MBU because I was like please tell me that this isn't how it's going to be from now on and they said Rebecca it takes months to heal from a c-section you are three weeks four weeks postpartum and you moved in a wrong way it's expected that you're going to feel pain but in my head we're still catastrophizing I couldn't yeah I couldn't rationalize a lot of the anxiety and things that you were experiencing were around your health and well-being yeah did that did it extend beyond that or, or was that kind of the primary issue I mean did it ever extend to your baby and having health anxiety around the baby God, I feel like a bad mom for saying this, but no, it was. What? That does not make you a bad mom. Oh my god! (laughs) No, I feel like I should have been concerned about my baby. No, obviously you, (laughs) obviously you would have been concerned about your baby, but having anxiety, not not at that anxious level. I think that's where. That's probably, it was more when the OCD kicked in. That was where I was more fixated with the baby. Ah. So a bit of a different, I, I guess I'm separating the anxiety yeah. and the OCD in that sense. It was my health anxiety. It was my fear of the world. And what have I done bringing a baby into this scary world? Yeah. But then the OCD was more around his safety in the sense that I'm the dangerous one. Wow. Okay, so let's talk about the OCD then. So you were sort of having these um, PTS symptoms and then Mm. when did the OCD kind of start to emerge? Um, Again, I'm going to just preface this. It was there (laughs) early in my life and very much so in that third trimester. Mm -hmm. Hindsight, um, wonderful thing. Um, But it really peaked, I guess, um, 
like day six or seven, like that one week postpartum. Um, and the only way I can describe OCD is kind of how I describe PTSD is that everything feels like a threat. Mm. And the scary part is that you yourself, your body, your mind is the threat mm. and that nowhere is safe anymore. Um, so it looked like for me, and you can have many flavors, I guess, of OCD, let's call them that themes. <laughs> um, Mine looked like thoughts of harm to myself and to my baby. Mm. You know, those things that I was really scared of were just constantly on my mind, on repeat, all day, every day. So it started in pregnancy, um, again, just anxiety. <laughs> um, and it wasn't until we got home that those symptoms just... I would see these horrible images of me hurting my son. So I'd avoid him because I thought if I'm not near him, then that keeps him safe. Mm. Um, I'd go into the kitchen and like my mum or my husband might have left scissors on the kitchen counter and I had to quickly hide them in the cupboard so and like slam the drawer shut and walk away so that it was a just in case I snap, I need to know that they're not easily accessible just in case. Um, and it got to that point that I would make my husband hold me um, for hours at a time because I just convinced myself that if I wasn't restrained, then what if I'm capable of acting on these horrible thoughts what if I do get postpartum psychosis and I snap I need to be restrained in order to keep myself and my baby safe and it is a horrible horrible thing to think and feel especially as a mum you know you had this fear that I was going crazy and you know I was analyzing like if I'd heard a random sound I would ask my husband did you hear that you know, did you hear that? And he's like, no, did I hear what? And I was like, that's it. I'm, it must be that I'm starting to hear voices. It must be the postpartum psychosis. So it was just this absolute fear and conviction that I was going crazy. And yeah, like the PTSD, postpartum OCD added to that feeling that I couldn't be trusted, that I was the threat and I was bad. And I think with OCD as well, the distress, yes, it comes from the intrusive thoughts, but it also comes from the meaning we attach to those thoughts. Mm -hmm. So I can't believe I had that thought. I'm bad. I can't be trusted. Maybe I really do want to hurt my baby. It's attaching meaning to those scary, repetitive images, those obsessions. So, you know, then the compulsions come as well, which add another layer of distress because you know what you're doing is illogical, but it's a just in case. It's I need to do these things to prove to myself that I'm not bad. So you perform those compulsions and you ruminate and you try to think your way out of it because the, the meaning you're attaching to those thoughts is clearly I'm a bad mum. What kind of mother thinks about a pillow on top of her son's face or a, a knife or, scissors or whatever it is, you know, just those horrible things on repeat. What kind of mother does that? And yeah, that's, it's that vicious, vicious cycle with OCD mm. is that it's all just fueling, you know, the meaning you're attaching to those images creates that obsession and then the compulsions just fuel it even more. Yeah. So you're just going round and round and round and round. And so this is all on top of that, you know, the nightmares that I was having, those flashbacks, the avoidance, the insomnia, I couldn't sleep, like all of this was happening. So, so you had a hell of a lot going on in your head to yourself. Mm. That, that That's mm. invisible. People can't actually see how much is going on. There's some behaviours that emerge and things like that with the compulsions and things like that. But in order for those behaviours to emerge, what has to happen in your brain before you perform mm. them? Like there is a hell of a lot going on here. Yeah. Wow. And so it wasn't until I think I was 
you know, that the compulsions were becoming obvious to my husband. Because right. originally it was just me in a ball, crying, wanting to avoid the baby. You know, it's all very much in my head. I'm I'm scared of this. I'm anxious. What, you know, am I dying? Blah, blah, blah. You know, it was that kind of stuff. I keep seeing these images in my head. Like, I'm telling him these things. It wasn't until I was making him hold me for hours and, you know, not eating, not sleeping, all of this, that he's sitting there thinking there's... <laughs> This is where we need to get help, really. My husband's a very much should-be-right kind of person. (laughs) And, you know, I'd had a not-so-great interaction with a psychiatrist at this point, Mm. um, a doctor as well, and, you know, they said, oh, she's clearly suicidal, just take her to this emergency psych ward. And my husband, he says, I know you. I know you're not suicidal. I know you're not going to hurt yourself, nor are you going to hurt our son. Um, Me being me, I was like, but the doctor said I have to go to the hospital. I should go to the hospital. He says, I'm not taking you to the hospital. I'm not driving you to the hospital. You know, I'm going to keep you at home. And if things get worse, then we'll talk about it. But I know you're okay. (laughs) Like, I know you're not going to hurt yourself. And for a couple of days, it was fine in that sense. Like, I wasn't going to do anything. But then it was, I just said to my husband one day, I don't know how I can do this anymore. Mm. I don't want to be here. Like, I can't. These feelings, these thoughts, these symptoms, these behaviours, like, how do you live like this? And that's when he had said, okay, it's time we go to hospital. It's time we get that help. And I I hadn't mentioned this before, but as part of the hospital where I gave birth at, um, I was provided um, access to an obstetric social worker. Mm. Um, And she had mentioned to me, while I was still in the maternity hospital before I got discharged home, she'd mentioned, she goes back, there's this place where some mothers can go who are anxious like you. And I don't want you to panic, but it's a psychiatric hospital, but you go with your baby and it's great and blah, blah. And she was telling me about it. And I was, that was just another thing to be scared of. I was like, does she think I'm that crazy that I need to go to the hospital? And that absolutely terrified me. So then when my husband turned around day 10 postpartum and said, Beck, I think I need to take you to emergency, I said, okay, but before we go to emergency where I can't bring my son, you can't come with me, I'm going to be alone, I'm going to be in an assessment room for probably three days by myself. Like, you know, before we get to that point, I'm calling the social worker and I called her and I said, can you get me into the MBU? Um, And she did. And so I thought, let me just get this... (laughs) one last thing out of the way before I have to concede to going to the public emergency psych ward. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, two days after that phone call, I didn't know how I was going to survive those two days. They were, they were rough. Um, but two days after I called her, um, I walked into the MBU and that changed my life. Mm. Um, Tell me about it. How, what was going on? It was the lowest point in my life. Mm. You know, you're barely a week postpartum and you're walking through a door of a psych hospital holding your one and a bit week old baby. You know, that, again, that blame, (laughs) that, that pain as well, like that is not how it was meant to be. You know, I've always been open about my anxiety. I've always been open about being a mental health advocate. But there was a whole other side of mental health, I think, that I just... I had my blinkers on or I had my blinders on, I should say. And I just, that was for crazy people, you know, medication. I hadn't even been on medication my whole life because I was so damn determined that I was going to do therapy and I was going to get through it and it would be okay. And so when you're then confronted 
with the medication and the the psychiatric hospital and you're a week postpartum like that it's a lot to take in that sense of self that I had just died it died with me and I think that was a good thing in in obviously a way because I think any shame or stigma or bullshit that I put on myself it had to it had to leave in order for me to heal Mm -hmm. There was no way I could get better if I kept fighting with the psychiatrist. I kind of resisted the program for a week because I just thought, oh, I don't want to, I really don't want to be on the medication. No, I don't want to take sleeping tablets. I can just, I can just, I'm here, it's fine. I'll just keep functioning and then I'll get better. And then I had to get to that like a week and a bit point where I just realized I'm not getting better. And as hard as it is for someone like me who wants to be in control, I have to acknowledge that I don't know. I don't know how to get better. I don't know the magic recipe. I don't know it. And I had to go into the room with the psychiatrist and I said to her, I said, I know I'm not getting out of here anytime soon, but when I do, I want to not have to come back. You know, I don't want to, I don't want this to carry on. Like I want help. And I will, I'm going to trust you to do that. And she said, Rebecca, we've done this a thousand times before. You just need to trust us. And I did. And that's when that was my turning point, I guess. I had these beautiful psychiatrists who, yeah, and I know it's not easy putting your life in the hands of someone else, but, you know, they knew what they were doing. And for that, I'm so very grateful. And I'm so glad that I trusted them, mm. but that old version of me who wanted to be in control, who wanted to do it all and who wanted to, you know, prove that I was stronger than medication or whatever it was, she had to go. Mm. (laughs) So that MBU saved my life. It was the lowest point in my life, but also in hindsight, the best thing I ever did because I, I think I can safely say as much as I don't like to admit it, I don't think I would be here mm. um, today talking to you if I didn't go to that MBU. Yeah. I don't think I would be a mother to my son. I don't think I would be here, full stop. Yeah. So, you know, that's... They are um, very... they are wonderful and they and we definitely need more access to them because I know yes. that they don't exist everywhere. No. Can you tell <laughs> me, though, about some of the support that you did receive at this time? Yeah, so... My little list. Um, so obviously I had the obstetric social worker. Mm-hmm. So I'd seen her twice during pregnancy. She was keeping an eye on things, making sure I was still in touch with the psychologist. I was. She was in the room with me when I gave birth. Um, so she was the one who actually held my son for about 10 minutes. So I think. Or a midwife. Like I don't know, but I think I have a photo. Someone took a photo of her holding him. Mm. So that that kind of gave me some comfort because she was so beautiful. Um, had a very supportive obstetrician, which I count as a blessing um, because she was the one who put me in touch with Gidget Foundation mm-hmm. so that throughout my pregnancy I was speaking to a psychologist. Like I said, it I was holding myself back because, oh, it's my normal anxiety, so it's fine. So, like I said, I can never blame anyone else. Like, no one was incompetent or anything. It was how honest I was with myself so I had the psychologist I had the beautiful psychiatrist at the mother and baby unit who is still my psychiatrist now um 
I had my very supportive husband. Um, I can only imagine how hard it is to go through something like any perinatal mental ill health when your partner is, you know, I don't know, mental health doesn't exist or just think better. And my husband was never like that. He's stubborn. Don't get me wrong. He's very much, she'll be right. I don't need to go to doctors. But (laughs) he also knows that we're very different people. Um, And even now I'll say things like, you know, if, if we ever go down this road again, what if it happens again? He goes back, if it happens again, then it happens again. I'm still here. You will still get through it because you've done it before. Mm. So, you know, again, I cannot imagine going through that if I didn't have my other half, (laughs) you know, being part of me through that journey. Oh, sorry. Being with me through that journey. And that's a big part of the MBU, um, that, Maybe people don't understand. So compared to normal psych unit or a psych ward, you're not by yourself. You're there with your baby. You're admitted together. But your partners are also there. They're also encouraged to stay. They're encouraged to attend some of the group therapies or the programs. And they have access to, like, a chaplet. Like, you know, they have a counsellor that they can talk to if they need it as well. So that was huge. Mm. And my parents as well were extremely supportive. Like, my mum when all this happened she moved in with us for three months so she could just be an extra person this was in the middle of COVID lockdown too so there was no none of that external support either so this was very much isolated but at least my mum was there so it wasn't just me and my husband and my mental illness it was my mum was there as well helping you know the practical stuff with the baby and mum I just I'm you know I'm drowning right now I just need a minute can you hold him you know so that was incredible Mm. and obviously the medication was a big support (laughs) um that was yeah as stubborn as I was I needed it to get me to a level where I could engage in therapy again because all those skills that I had which were still incredible they weren't working in that distressed acute state so I needed the medication to help me sleep to help me get to a less distressed maybe that moderate kind of um, state so that I could then, you know, pick up all the skills that I used to have and re-engage in therapy and all of that stuff. Mm. Um, so I think as well, maybe a part of my story was owning it. Yeah. Um, that was a big part of my experience. And I don't think I would have recovered as I have if I didn't do that. Like, even if I was surrounded by all the experts who were so supportive and wonderful, if I didn't, accept my experience without attaching meaning to it like you know oh it means I'm broken or whatever then I don't know if I would have been able to accept the help that I did have that's a Um, really great point to make absolutely I did want to ask just on the topic of medication is Mm -hmm. stop apologizing (laughs) I am such an apologizer so you know I'm working on it it used to be so much worse so it's it is what it is um no so with the medication mm-hmm. was there any kind of health anxiety around like side effects and all that yeah because i i often yeah, find that 100%, this is really common 100 yeah. percent. and i mean you know there was that part of me that didn't want to what if i turn into a zombie or what if this induces a psychotic episode yeah. like i went through all of that i am i was so so lucky and i am so so lucky i didn't have any side effects from my medication aside from you know, that drowsiness that you get at the beginning, that was it. I had no side effects. So I count my lucky stars. 
that these psychiatrists put me on the right medication. Well, you've been through and enough, though, my goodness. <laughs> I think if I backtrack a little bit, um, while I was still at the maternity hospital, I, I'd said to you I had a, um, a not-so-good experience with a psychiatrist. So the hospital had brought in a consulting psychiatrist because they could see the state I was in. And so this was the night before I was discharged. And this psychiatrist put me on a different type of antidepressant. And there was logic for that. Um, those gave me ridiculous side effects. Right. Um, and that was to add to everything that was going on. Mm. Um, that was severe depression. So I can handle anxiety <laughs> to some extent. I, I'm not scared of my anxiety. I am scared of depression. And that pit of depression that I felt every time I took the medication was terrifying. So then you're going through... That's why the GP had thought that maybe the um, maybe I was suicidal because he thought it was the medication mm. that was doing that to me. And so we weaned off that without going to the psych hospital. But once the depression was gone, obviously the anxiety is still there, the PTSD is still there, the OCD is still there. So that was only a small portion, and I probably can't blame the those antidepressants on their own clearly I was weaning I was a week postpartum all the hormones like there was enough going on I can't just blame that medication but it wasn't right for me yeah. and in hindsight the medication I'm on now is the one that they prescribe for OCD that other medication isn't so I think that you know there were a few things at play and maybe it was just that I was stubborn maybe I was just oh this is gonna hurt me or you know maybe I was just too resistant to it I don't know it could have been me but ultimately it wasn't right and the medication I got on um, when I got to the MBU was just yeah and they explained everything to me in the MBU they said this could happen this is what we're using this for we're going to introduce this one as well to prevent any other side effects and blah 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 like everything was explained they held my hand through the whole process which really helped take away my own anxiety and my own worries about taking medication mm-hmm. so would you say i'm mm. really big on like specialized training specialized knowledge having that special mm. interest in a certain field particularly when it comes to mm. mental health and i yeah. even in my own life i've often found over and over and over um, <laughs> that if we are seeing mental health professionals that do not have specialized training in the specific field and need that you require, it will be ineffective. Yeah. That's my personal I, I mean, opinion, obviously. Yeah. But I can't say that for everyone, obviously. But in my experience, I see a perinatal psychologist. Yep. I see a perinatal psycholo- uh, psychiatrist. Yep. I saw an obstetric social worker. Yep. Um, and I would... I wish every single mum who was going through this had access to that because when I wasn't seeing someone specialised, like when I went to the GP to say, I'm feeling this pit of depression, this medication I think is making it worse, these are all my other symptoms, they didn't ask any questions. Yeah. Um, they just said, well, clearly you're suicidal. They didn't ask about intrusive thoughts. Mm-hmm. And that I think is where someone in the perinatal field... Um, knows that you know if you're having these thoughts you know that there's they can distinguish between what's something that's ego dystonic versus something you actually want to act on I was so distressed by these thoughts that you know the perinatal psychiatrist was able to say to me you know and then they did the test for OCD 
So I was diagnosed while I was in the MBU because they were able to pick up on yeah. that. Um, the GP had just thought, oh, well, if you're having thoughts about harming yourself or your baby, then you must be dangerous, you must be suicidal, yeah. go to the emergency psych ward, which is where my husband said, look, I know you're not like that. So my husband knew, but even after coming off the meds and still going through that OCD, it was my husband had said, look, you need, we need to get you the help. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what's going on, but you do need help. And that was, that was fair. Um, but yeah, I do, I do think that that specialization can make a difference, especially when you feel like you're going crazy and you think that there's no other mums going mm. through this. You, I often find that, you know, the people who take on that specialization have gone through it themselves. Um, you know, it, it's, it, it would be rare, I assume, for a 17-year-old going into university to want to study a perinatal psychiatry specifically. They wouldn't like, even I know that like... exists. <laughs> exactly. So I feel like the people in that area have gone through mm-hmm. it and they, again, I can't speak for everyone, but I think they have that level of compassion mm-hmm. and validation potentially that you know you're not crazy you're not broken you're not a bad mum you're just well they're able to recognize the uniqueness in this period of life yeah and the transition and the challenges and the struggle and what happens to your body and brain when these happen like we can't yeah. compare say regular depression to say something like postnatal depression they look different yeah. I wanted to ask about your husband and how he was kind yeah. of throughout all of this um, mm. hardship within your family mm. and struggle because day to day, like that, that mm. looks and feels tough. So yeah. how was he I coping? Mean, like I said, he's a very stubborn person. I don't know if that helps him or not, but um, he was mum and dad for a while yeah. to our son he was both um because I couldn't be I couldn't be mum I could be sometimes mum it felt um I, I used to say this a lot I felt like my son's babysitter rather than his mum for mm. a long time um but he coped it, it was hard I think because it was COVID lockdown yeah so because of that when you go to the MBU normally you can come and go as you please but because it was COVID lockdown, it was you come into the hospital and you stay. If you leave, then you need to go get the PCR test and you need to wait a couple of days and then you can come back in. So he didn't leave. And my husband's very much, if he feels like getting a coffee, he'll go up and get a coffee. If he wants to go for a walk, he'll go for a walk. He couldn't do that. So I think that part of it is where he struggled. Mm. Um, the actual parenting stuff, the mental health stuff, for me... <laughs> surprisingly I think he was okay amazing um yeah he's just one of those people that isn't an anxious person Mm. isn't it yeah and it's like we're completely opposite people I'm like how do you exist he's go how do you exist (laughs) you know it's we're just I don't know how people live without anxiety I think I'm just so used to it but yeah we we are who we are Mm. and I think he just knew that he had to take on a bit more of the the physical and mental load and yes that did take a toll because I think he was exhausted um and probably a bit frustrated mm-hmm. um but as I started to you know come out of what I went through and 
you know, go back into being mum. You know, it got, obviously it got a lot easier for him. So So the MBU was kind of this catalyst for this this change in you you like you say you kind of shedded yeah. your old self yeah. and you were coming into your new self yeah and it helped with that acceptance and mm. that self-compassion and owning my story and it put me back on the path to writing as well like writing and storytelling mm. helped me process what I'd been through and accept it and also allowed you to imagine that like when you're writing you can imagine a future that's a good one I guess you, or you can imagine a future in general whereas when you're in the thick of what you're going through, it's hard to even think that you, you're going to survive the next hour, let alone a week, let alone a month. Yeah. So, yeah, it gave me that and it gave me little moments with my son. I call them little moments because there were little moments of joy and awe and happiness. Um, so they gave it gave me that. How long were you? was the stay in the MBU? Four and a half weeks. Oh, wow. So normally it's three yep. weeks. Um Again, I was, me being me, oh, I don't want to take the sleep medication at first. You know, I really resisted a lot of the help they wanted to provide in that first week because I was stubborn and I wanted to do it myself and I wanted to prove I was stronger than the medication or whatever. And that's when I had the sit down with them about a week and a half in. So it was almost like we restarted the program at that point. And then I stayed for four and a half weeks and I was terrified to leave. Mm. I was, I was, I felt so safe there. And, you know, when you, when go through something like what I did and you don't feel safe in your own home or in your own mind having somewhere where you felt safe was huge and you're telling me I have to leave no I don't want to leave I want to stay yeah (laughs) but they were so beautiful they you know it's not like they wipe their hands clean of you they're like Rebecca it's a step down in care you know you still have access to the psychiatrist you can still call and hey, worst case scenario, you come straight back in. It's like great. I'm not unpacking my bags when I get home, <laughs> just in case. But I never had to go back. Amazing. I never had to go back. So and so it was sort of onward and upward, so to speak. I know it's not linear, but so to speak. I mean, I think something that again took me by surprise was when the birth trauma stuff kind of not that it came back, but you know when the anxiety goes down, the distress goes down the other symptoms can kind of have their moment to shine. Mm. And, you know, that's when I'm driving past the hospital where I gave birth and all of a sudden I'm bursting into tears, hysterically sobbing to the point my husband says, pull over, you're going to have a crash. And I didn't know why that happened. And, you know, you're avoiding things. You're still not looking at your C-section scar. Mm. You know, that's when it started to become apparent. Okay, that's what's going on here. And then, you know, in hindsight, you're making all the dots or connecting all the dots with your psychologist. Like, okay, so that hypervigilance that you had, that hyperarousal that you had, the avoidance, the nightmares. And it's like, oh, okay, we're ticking all the boxes. And okay, that's what that was. So that was something that took me by surprise. And I think then came another resurgence of blame, Mm. I guess. Um, But then grief hit, which I think is common. after you go through something like this you grieve for what's happened or what could have been and you know I was three months postpartum and that grief that I'm not getting that time back that crucial newborn fourth trimester stage Mm. that's gone and that wasn't those memories that I have are less about my son and more about what was going on in my head so again, another wave of blame. Yeah. Um, but yeah, for the most part, 
it has been I've been very lucky it's been onwards and upwards but I have such an incredible team around me that that was possible yeah it really does come down to support a lot of the time and like you were saying your willingness to accept mm. and try some new things and yeah. confront some of those beliefs confront all that stigma yeah. and stuff that I held or that I was stronger than medically yeah no that wasn't serving me yeah. it was holding me back yeah and when I actually realized that that's when things got better yeah. because and luckily I was in a place with the right people to help me mm. you know I, I was lucky in that sense yeah can I ask you what do you wish we talked mm-hmm. about more in regards to perinatal mental health yeah um a big thing that I wish we talked about two things I think um which I think I mentioned before is that I wish we talked about mental health in pregnancy mm. rather than just the emphasis on postpartum mm-hmm. um because I don't think that helps anyone even myself included, because that fundamental belief that, oh, it's just hormones or things will be okay once the baby's here, it's not. It, it usually gets worse at that point mm-hmm. when the baby's here, when you go through birth. Um, there's no shame in getting that help in pregnancy. And, I mean, in the space or the community that I've created, um, I like going through research papers and looking at what things are saying. And there was a paper I found that, showed I think at least 50% of quote-unquote postpartum um, depression had actually started during pregnancy and you know we suck it up we suck it up in pregnancy oh it's hormones it's oh you know whatever it is and oh once the baby's here it'll be fine it's just nerves you're just anxious about birth you're just anxious about being a mum blah 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 we think it'll be fine but it's not um and I wish we spoke about that more because how much how many mums wouldn't have to suffer if we actually acknowledged that in pregnancy and treated it potentially while it was at that mild or moderate Mm -hmm. state so that they could enter motherhood without bringing that with them or at least preventing it from becoming severe or acute um, in those early weeks postpartum that's what I wish we spoke about the other thing as well is intrusive thoughts Mm. Um, not necessarily just OCD but intrusive thoughts in general we're talking 70 to 100 percent of mums experience intrusive thoughts of harm related uh, harm related thoughts to their child yep. so and when that's... we use the word intrusive thoughts people think these are big bad things right no. and i was having a conversation with a girlfriend probably about a year ago and she just had a baby mm. and i'd asked her you know how you're going have you been having any intrusive thoughts i just asked these questions to all my friends <laughs> it's very open and yeah. um she was like no no and i was like okay so like you haven't thought about you know, walking down the stairs and potentially dropping him or maybe like you're on your way out the door and you think, Oh, what if I skim his head on the door on the way out? And, you know, and, Oh Mm. yeah, I have had those. Yeah. Those are intrusive thoughts. (laughs) Like we just, we have, we think that they have to be big and also Mm. they're not always necessarily distressing, like acutely distressing. Mm. Like obviously Mm. any kind of image with your baby having any harm would be distressing, but yeah, like Mm. talking about, the reality of intrusive thoughts and yes, how mm. common they are and yeah. And what yeah. they look like. Yeah. And I think as well that reassurance because, you know, OCD in particular is diagnosed more frequently in postpartum than any other time in a woman's life. Yeah. Right. And that distress with those intrusive thoughts, I thought it meant I was getting psychosis. I thought yeah. it meant I'm a bad mum because I'm going to act on these thoughts. So what I wish we could talk about, yes, we have intrusive thoughts. Yes, it is extremely common, but I wish we had 
the mental health literacy to know that these thoughts are ego dystonic. Yep. They go against your values. That is why you're distressed. I wish we had the mental health literacy to be able to say that these thoughts, um, they're apparently protective behaviours. You are not likely, very unlikely, to actually act on them. You are less likely than the general population to act on your intrusive yep. thoughts as a mother. So I wish we spoke about that because... Again, a lot of that distress comes to the meaning that we're attaching to mm -hmm. those thoughts. So I'm a bad mother or I must want to act on them. I'm a bad person. If we could take that away and say this is not reflective of you as a person, this does not define your worth as a human being or as a mother, it doesn't demonstrate your values or your morals, it is nothing to do with that. They are just thoughts. Yeah. How much less suffering would we have to go through mm. and how much so, easier to kind of process and mm -hmm. you know decompartmentalize the thought yeah. and you know like not having those beliefs around it like it's it's so much easier to do those things it is and i mean again easier anything is easier said than done sometimes. yeah absolutely you know um but those are the things i wish we spoke about mm. because well i love that you've mentioned mental health in pregnancy because I often find when we do talk about that it's oh that's a risk factor for what could happen postpartum and then that's kind of it <laughs> we're not actually talking about what it looks like and where you can get support and you know all of that so yeah no I love that um all right do you have maybe a message or something that you want to say to other mothers who may resonate with your story I always start this by saying I'm sorry. Mm. So don't don't yell at me. Sorry, <laughs> this is part of my message. Um, I want to say sorry if you do resonate. Um, I didn't expect it when I started this space to feel that way. When I get a lot of messages, people will message me saying I resonated with your story or I resonated with this, and I didn't expect how much that would. Obviously, I'm touched. You know that someone doesn't feel alone. But it hurts my heart because I never want anyone to feel what I felt. Mm -hmm. So first of all, I'm sorry if you do resonate. I really am because it sucks. Um, but a message of support, you are worthy of support. You know, whether you have an acute episode like I did or whether you're just in that mild or whatever, whether you're just experiencing symptoms that aren't even a diagnosis, mm -hmm. you don't have to earn the right to ask for help or to get support there is no oh this person has it worse mm. or I like I did with myself I have no valid reason to be going through what I'm going through because my birth was textbook so I'm broken so you know invalidating yourself you don't do that you are worthy of support um you don't have to suck it up you don't have to go it alone yes others may have it worse or others may have a better reason quote unquote for what they're going through but you still are worthy of support and help and there are incredible professionals out there I know there's some not so good ones out there that's fine but don't stop looking for the good ones because they are there and they will help you yeah so love that why do you feel that it's important mm. to share experiences like yours? I mean, yeah, you've got Perinatal oh. Stories Australia. You're very mm. vocal about your experience now. Like, mm. what? Why do you feel that it's important? I mean, twofold. On the one hand, it is semi-cathartic for me. It helps me own my story. Um, 
But then on the other hand, and this is the bigger reason why I started the space, um, it's to remove that stigma. Yeah. It's to remove that shame. I don't want people to feel alone. So if someone like myself or my guests are comfortable sharing that story and it helps someone feel less alone, then then we've won. Yeah. That's, that's the goal. And, you know, it's also important to share so that we do have that collective mental health literacy. And I think I find that when people message me and they say things like, oh, I listened to this episode today and I actually went to the GP this morning because I hadn't told anyone. Mm-hmm. Again, that's that's why. And that just, when I get messages like that, it just reinforces why it's important to share. Yeah, there's such power in being able to say those hard things out loud. Yeah, and it's not easy. Don't no. get me wrong, I'm sitting here thinking... God, to condense my story into an hour, yeah. I sound like a nutcase. <laughs> like, as you know, if I can say that, it's like, oh, shit. Like, really? No, I feel you. Yeah, I feel exactly the same. Yeah. So, you know, you want to convey the nuance of it, but you also just want to get to the point. And it's like when you sit it down and write it in bullet points, it's like, shit, this shit's crazy. Like, you know, even I feel that now two years later. Yeah. And it's, you know, again, it's trying to remove that bullshit from myself too. Mm. It's owning that story and hoping that yeah it might be hard to talk about or it might be a little bit embarrassing or you know maybe someone will think oh she's crazy but if it's helping someone else Mm. then yeah it's worth it absolutely and so what does the future look like for you and perinatal Mm. stories australia it's a hard one to answer because i want to do everything and the problem is I want to do it all at once (laughs) I feel Um, you there (laughs) yeah so I right now and I think a big part of my journey the MBU my psychology sessions is you know what are your values and what can you do every day or what little things can you do to live towards your values and so I'm trying to hold on to that and if it feels right then I'm going to keep doing it. And for now, it does feel right. It feels right to tell stories, to share stories. I feel at peace when I do that. Um, it's hard, don't get me wrong. It's very hard to listen to the stories of sometimes the hardest times in someone's life. Mm-hmm. But I feel honoured that they trust me to do that. Um, and, yeah, I will sit with that um, and make room for the for what feels right for those values as long as it feels good mm-hmm. I guess um and I want to study I think um maybe psychology not to practice I don't want to practice like be a practicing clinical psychologist um but maybe do research um or just somehow figure out how to disseminate information and or figure out what can we do to make things better for future mothers yeah. and families so you know it's not it's not always about prevention I would love I would absolutely love to be able to prevent this from happening to anyone. Um, the reality is, like in my case, there's not, there's nothing, there's not always something we can do to prevent it. But can we at least minimise the suffering? Can we reduce that sense of loneliness or that shame or those, that meaning we're attaching to those situations saying that, okay, I must be broken or I must be a bad mother? What can we do? to make it better so that someone doesn't have to go through that at that intensity Mm. is is the goal anyway and again I want to do so many things and I want to do them all today um but 
hopefully we'll get that one <laughs> you will you will <laughs> thank you oh i appreciate this so much rebecca your honesty your vulnerability your humility like there was so much going on all at once and i know it's really difficult to try and condense something so intense and profound in your life mm. into such a short period of time um but i think that you've captured it really well and I love that you are continually working on yourself. I think that is just such an amazing trait to have. And at the same time, I recognize that some days are crap and some days are good. Mm. You know, I, I feel that myself. <laughs> but yeah. no, I appreciate it so much. Thank you for coming on. No, thank you so much for having me and for being one of those people who hold space for others because, you know, it's one thing to own our story, but mm. to actually have someone who sit with us through that story is huge so thank you thank you so much for listening we hope you enjoyed this episode if you're listening and would like to share your story with us or feel compelled to talk about issues surrounding women's health please don't hesitate to reach out we would love to hear from you you can find us at the power of birth on instagram and facebook or on our website thepowerofbirth.net if you loved this episode we would love it if you left us a review on whatever podcast platform you're listening on and share us with your family and friends The conversation has to start somewhere. Thank you again for listening and we hope you join us in the next episode.